Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,431. Today, we're going to have a little fun with a past racer. <laughs> this guy is a hoot. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Newport Pagnell, which is the home of Aston Martin, pretty cool, in the UK, with a very special guest by the name of Ian Flux. Ian, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? Yeah, I sure am, Mark. Look forward to it. This is going to be fun, I have no doubt. Now, I always ask my guests this question before we begin. What's one little thing, and after this book you've written, they're going to know a lot of things about you, but one little thing that maybe people don't know about Ian Flux? Um, oh, God, I'm, I'm going to have to think on my feet a bit quickly. Yeah, I was a rent boy. A what? A rent boy. A rent boy. Okay, I'm afraid to ask what a rent boy is. Is where you hire yourself out for sex with men. What? Really? Yeah, yeah. That's how it, my I paid for my racing um, in 1978. Well, that is an answer to that question that I've never gotten on this show. <laughs> so I think that sets the tone for where we may be going today with this wild life that you've had. Oh my gosh. Well, let me give you an introduction and we're going to dive into this world of yours. Oh my goodness. Ian Flux is one of the most charismatic drivers to have taken to the racetrack and his story is one of perseverance against all odds. I guess so. His new book titled For Flux's Sake is his story and also the story of a lot of beer and cigarettes. Fluxy, as his pals call him, was one of the fastest drivers in the Formula 3 level, and he won so many races at the national level, and his speed never diminished despite a very wild lifestyle. The book is a colorful ride from the travels of an up-and-coming race car driver through the story of a man desperately trying to spin the plate to keep a professional driving career going. While he is not an example of to ambitious young carters of today, the tale is sure to cause you to raise a glass of a beer to this very unique racer. This book is published by our friends at Evro Publishing, who've brought us many, many unique authors. I have a feeling Ian's going to be one of the most unique we've ever had. We'll be back in just a moment with first a word from our sponsors, so please give them a little love and we'll be right back. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up, way up, but my usage was the same and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations, and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 866- 224-9324 and protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. 
For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. They're talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. So, Ian, we are back. So I've got to start at the beginning here because this book that you've written about yourself and this wild and crazy life, and we could probably talk for hours about your wild and crazy life, kind of started back when you were just about six years old. And I think your parents bought you a cart. This is how a lot of racers start racing. Was that the beginning? Yeah, it really was. Um, my, my dad was the oldest farming son, and he wasn't allowed really to enjoy himself. It was in, in those years, the oldest son was expected to step up and work hard. Uh-huh. But he had a younger brother, and his brother was allowed to go racing. Only He only did a few races, and dad wanted to race but couldn't, and Mervyn did. And dad always said, if you know, if I have a son who shows a bit of he likes going racing. We went to watch lots of races. He'd uh, try and get me started. Well, that sounds like fun. So as many, and I've had hundreds of race car drivers on the show, so many of them start in karting. But you progressed up through the ranks, I think somewhat pretty quickly. You showed some talent there. Well, I, I didn't actually start proper. So I had a cart and we lived on the farm. And luckily we had a mile and a half of tarmac through the farm. Nice. So I, I was going up and down there for many years. And I didn't actually start racing till I was 14 because in those days, you, you in 1970, you couldn't start till you were 14. You couldn't uh, race a car. Unlike now, when you can race when you're eight, like Lewis Hamilton did. But just going back to when I was 17, I upset my, my parents enormously. Uh, I was an apprentice mechanic in a, a garage and I had to go to college. And I hated college and I got th- thrown out of college. They weren't a bit pissed about that. But then a a stroke of luck, the guy who owned the garage, because I was one of five apprentices, he couldn't have me back in the garage. But he had a friend who had a racing team. And by that time, I'd started racing. But not only was it a racing team, it was a Formula One team. And it was called Token and uh, T-O-K-E-N. And they wanted a van driver, floor sweeper, team maker, gopher. And that's what I went along there. And I, at that point in my life, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. But literally, I was there four days and it was a light switching on the light moment. And I suddenly realized this is what I want to do for the next few years. Yeah. didn't realize at that point it was going to turn out the rest of my life. But yeah, it was a, a real moment that uh, I just thought, this is it. I found what I want to do. Yeah, I'm at home. Well, let's talk a little bit about this quote-unquote, rest of your life. Kind of walk us through the evolution of you, the kinds of cars, the racing you did, because you raced a lot of different things, and you were you were everywhere. You mentioned in uh, a pre-show chat that the last time you were in the U.S. was, uh, I think, in the 80s, racing over here. So, or late 70s, maybe? 79? No, uh, 89. 89, yeah, 89. Yeah, so I, I raced for Carl Haas before Nigel Mansell did. Wow. And he was the Lola importer for America. And I did all the testing in England for the car. 
um, with the proviso that uh, they would then take me to America to demonstrate. I did it for two years. We did uh, Zebring and Moroso, um, like a winter series to pr promote the new car. And I won, um, was set, first year I was first and second, and the second year I was second and first. Wow. Uh, both tracks. And that helped sell Lola's. Well, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about this career as it evolved and all the different types of cars you ran in and where you raced at. Because once you stepped into that F1 team and you said, this is my life, then you had to figure out how to make your life happen, right? Yeah, yeah. But the, just to show you, know, as the Las Vegas Grand Prix was yesterday and you saw how many staff there were, you know, people are not going to believe this, but our entire Formula One team at Token consisted of Tony, uh, Tom Bryce, who raced, who was the driver, and who sadly got killed in South Africa when a fire extinguisher that from a marshal hit him on the head. The designer was Ray Jessup, so that's one person. The chief engineer was Neil Trundle, who worked then at McLaren for years and years and years. Still a good friend to this day. He's just recently retired. Uh, a guy called Chris Lewis was the mechanic, and me as the gopher. That was the entire... F1. You know, uh, when we when Pete Lovely was still alive, he lived up here in the Pacific Northwest, and I got to know him some 30 years ago when I moved here. Yeah. And I used to sit once in a while. I was lucky enough to have lunches with him and talk with him. I actually hired a couple of his daughters. I think he had seven daughters or something like that uh, to work for me at a company I was at. But Pete would tell me those early days about just how small these teams were and how close everybody was being friends. And, it, yeah. you know, after a race, they'd all go out to a pub and have a beer and enjoy and talk a little bit. And it's become so different than that. So maybe throw out some names here, because it sounds like you hung around with some very cool people. Well, our, um, because it was a very small and underfinanced team, the team closed early because Tom Price, we, we couldn't get an entry for Monaco 1974 because Bernie had decided, you know, the little teams at the back, that there wasn't enough room for them. So he said, right, no to a, a, a few of us. But we, um, Tom also had a one of the sponsors in the F1 team had a, his own Formula 3 team. So they put Tom in the Formula 3 car in the Grand Prix support race and Tom just won it and disappeared into the distance. Yeah. From that win, uh, Shadow and Hesketh, uh, both, we were testing at Goodwood. Both flew in shortly after Monaco to Goodwood while we were testing the F1 car to get hold of Tom's signature on a contract. And obviously, you know, they were proper, proper well-supported team. yeah. teams. And uh, so Tom came to us afterwards and said, I've signed for Shadow. And that basically was the start of the demise of the team because Tom was, you know, our golden apple and right. he'd gone. Uh, we then did a, another couple of races uh, with Ian Ashley um, and then the team folded. But Neil Trundle, who had been the engineer, was part of Rondell Racing. So Ron Dennis and Neil Trundle made Rondell. And Neil ran Graham Hill because he'd run him in Formula 2, knew Graham. Well, we all knew each other then. But uh, said to Graham Hill, the, t uh, the F1 team's folding. We've got a good lad. Um, I'd like you to give him a job and he can do this. He works all night and he drives and everything. I didn't even have to go for an interview. I, um, Neil just put the phone down from Graham and said, oh, you're starting on Monday. And that was <laughs> September the 1st, 1974. Wow. And then I was at Graham Hills thereafter till sadly the massive plane crash on November the 29th that killed 
all six of them in the in the plane. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to you. I want to talk about or have you talk about the evolution of the different types of cars that you raced throughout your racing career because you drove a lot of different cool stuff. Uh, over 600. 600. 100 race cars. Okay. <laughs> well, we probably don't have enough time to mention no, all of them. But, <laughs> but that's why I want people to buy your book because laced, yeah. laced into your history here is your personality and the wild times and all the fun. But maybe touch on just a couple as you evolved through the driving that you did. So initially I started in Formula V, in senior racing, Formula V. And you have Formula V in the States as yes. well. Uh-huh. I'm cheap and cheerful. Yes. But then <laughs> I did quite well at that. And uh, the guy, uh, there was a local building company doing very well. And they got involved with me towards the end of 1975 in Formula V. So, say, $2,000. And they, they said, right, we want to take you to Formula 3 next year. Here's $40,000. Oh, well, there's a jump. Yeah. So we did Formula 3 all around Europe. And they continued with me for 1977, went up to €50,000 uh, dollars in 1977 but i'd managed then to start uh, not doing so well and they pulled out at the end of 77 and then i had to retort to resort to some very different means of getting the cash together to go racing in 1978 which i said when you said tell me one thing people didn't know about the influx oh my goodness but uh, that, that that helped tie everything together for 1978 it was a real shoestring but it still kept me racing well, that seems to be the biggest challenge for any racer, even today. It's about money, money, money. And the numbers, when you compare them to today's numbers, seem pretty inexpensive. But they can be insurmountable. When you talk about $50,000 in the 70s, you know, you can yeah. buy houses for that. So so as you progress through the different kinds of racing, when did you feel like you finally got to a real proper fast race car? What was that car? It, it was a Lola of 530. It was one of the Can-Am cars that you had in the States. The Can-Am series really sort of finished, and all the cars basically came back to England, and we had our own. It wasn't called Can-Am. Can-Am it was called Thundersports in England, and I raced, raced the Lola T530 that Danny Sullivan had raced in, in the States. Wow. Well, those are fast cars, scary fast yeah. cars. Yeah, yeah. So when you got to the when you got to that point, did you just kind of think, okay, now I'm now I'm doing it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, and there was lots of drive. You could still be a driver if you you got paid a basic turning up fee. Uh, your hotel expenses covered and your fuel to get there. But always the the main thing was you got 50% of the prize money as a driver. Okay. And that, that's what I lived on. That's a motivation for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for when we were winning those Thundersport races in that Lola, the prize money was $6,000 for the for the race. And you, you got $3,000. Well, you know, in, in the... Aces, you could uh, you could live quite happily on three thousand dollars in a month. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, as your racing progressed, uh, what are some of the levels of the other levels of racing that you got into? What were you driving? Yeah, I, I did um, British touring cars, which is still very big over here. It's our biggest national championship, always televised. I I did that from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety three, and then I got an offer from tvr that they had their own one mate championship for tvr tuscans in 94 and because i didn't let them know but i've been sacked from peugeot 
touring car team for saying the engines were shit to a mate who then Uh-oh. made that into a headline. So I had to go and explain that to their PR department, yeah. which was a bit awkward. Yep. But TVR had approached me by that point to say that they'd like to have me doing racing their cars. So they gave me a dealer who was Clive Greenhalgh, Team Central. And uh, we were very, very successful for four years in TVR Tuscans. And they were great cars to drive, 500 horsepower in uh, fiberglass shells still. Well, they weighed 400 kilos. They had 500 horsepower in 400 kilos. (laughs) That works. (laughs) (laughs) They used to call them matchboxes because they caught fire quite a lot. Oh, goodness. Oh, well, that's not good. (laughs) You know, when when you look at this career of yours... I mean, it's 600 race car. Oh, my gosh. That's just incredible. I would assume along the way, you met many, many interesting people of a wide variety. Yeah. Is there one, at least for today, you could talk about that was perhaps a, a strong influence on you, a, a key mentor, if you will? Well, there was two, really. Uh, Graham Hill and Giacomo Agostini, the uh, world motorbike champion. Yes. Many times. In 79, I only did a, two races because um, that's all that fell my way. But So I worked for Giacomo Farago for the whole year. He'd given up bikes by that time, and he came to drive a Williams Formula One car in the British Championship. And, and I worked, and there was just two of us, Ian Dyer, who was Senna's mechanic at, Mac- at McLaren, and myself running Ago in, in a Williams, just two of us. Wow. He was such a nice guy and so gentle, you know, different when he put his helmet on. But uh, he he taught me manners. He wasn't big-headed. He was very humble about what he'd achieved. And I think that always sunk into to my psyche. You didn't realise you're picking up all this information at the time. But you know, a classic example, we were at Alton Park, which is a small circuit near Manchester, and some kids came over on their half-term, and they had a mini motorbike with them, and they came to, this was on our day off, so we were just fettling the car, and Ago was there at lunchtime. And these two kids were at 12, 13, asked him if they'd he would sign their petrol tank on their mini motocross bike, which he did. And then, and then he said, oh, can I sit on it? And he sat on it for 10 minutes, talking with these kids and us. And my mate Ian, who was running the car, he nudged me and went, Ago hasn't put his foot down for 10 minutes, well, sitting balancing on this kid's bike. Oh, my gosh. Wow. He didn't make anything of it. Anyway, they left and Ago left. And then we found these kids further down the paddock later in the afternoon. We said, oh, could you bring your bike back? And we want to try something. So everybody there, then, including the kids, we got a stopwatch out to see how long we could balance on it for. And I think like 22 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. And he sat on it for 10 minutes, completely a oblivious just the balance he held yeah and he never said anything about it at all well, of course not he didn't need to you know no no it said it all for him didn't it he was the man yeah i i watched those those motor gp guys and i just watched them in awe uh, same here mark you know same here. and and you get into the crazy world of uh isle of man and yeah. and what yeah. those guys are doing and i just i almost can't watch that because it's just well finger, fingers crossed mark uh, a friend of mine we saw three months ago uh, he has a, a, um, a house on the Isle of Man, and he's invited myself and my girlfriend to go and watch for a couple of days next year for, for the uh, TT. Oh, man. So wow. we're really looking forward to doing that. I've never been, always wanted to go. 
Oh, yeah, it blows you away. You know, you know, racing is so fraught with challenges. And this is a question I ask people from all walks of the automotive world. But to ask a racer this is almost nonsensical. But I'm going to ask you anyway, if you could go back to maybe one of the many challenges you faced racing, perhaps at a track or a car, whatever. Is there one story you can share with us that perhaps you shared in your book that really stands out for you that you look back now and say, man, I'm, I did like it, but I'm kind of glad I went through it because it taught me a really valuable lesson. There was a championship for, of three races I did in 1991 for Jaguar XJR15. So the three races were at Monaco, Silverstone and Spa, all supporting the Grand Prix. And uh, at Silverstone, the, the, the rear tyres were made by Bridgestone and they were really iffy. The front tyres were great, but the rear tyres were really a modified road tyre into a slick. So you had to drive accordingly to make them last the race. Anyway, at Silverstone, there was Derek Warwick, uh, David Brabham, Corroyza, Armin Hahn, Tiffany Dell, David Leslie, all these wow. all these guys. Yeah. And I led, there was a 20-lap race, and I led 17 of the 20 laps. Sadly, not the right 17. Yeah, not the so, last 17. Yeah. yeah. And with the last three laps to go, my, my rear tyres were really crying, and I, I slipped from leading to finish third. And I just think it would have, had I done the race a bit more gently to start with and come on, Strong in the end, yeah. In the end, because uh, Fanjo Fanjo two beat me to win the race, and Bob Wallach got me on the second to last corner. Oh goodness! Yeah. So I finished third, but it did have a good happy ending because Nigel Mansell had just won the Grand Prix that day, and our race was after the Grand Prix. This is nineteen ninety one, and because I was the only Englishman, they'd never heard of Fanjo or Wallach, the English fans. I was the next best thing. And they were chanting Fluxy, Fluxy, and it felt like I'd won the race. So you know, I had lived more laps than anybody, but it genuinely felt like they were they were all there for me. Yeah, well, Which they were. They were. <laughs> awesome. Is there a a car, perhaps over all these cars you raced and all this time you spent at tracks? Is there one that stands out that to this day you say, "I wish I could have driven that." So one that I hadn't driven, or yeah, one that one, that, one that you didn't get to drive, and you always thought, man, I just really wanted to race that car. Well, there's a, a it's an English car, and it probably won't mean much to your audience, but it was when I was doing Formula Three in 1976, 77. There was a very famous English driver called Jerry Marshall, a, another larger than life character, and he had this car that they did special saloons with, which was called Baby Bertha. But it was a, a saloon car with a with a, former, a V8 American engine in it, and we we everybody used to go and watch Jerry race. They go, oh, you know, even if you were in the next race, you'd find some way of watching a few laps of this car going around. And I'd love to have had a go in that car. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. The car I wish I'd 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 had a bit more of uh, input financially with was uh, I raced the McLaren F1 GTR. Ooh. Uh, in 1996 and won the British Championship with it. The, the, the co-gut driver was from Texas, so the, with your family. His name was Joe, Jake Ulrich. Ulrich, okay, yeah. And we won the British Championship in it, and Jake bought that car for uh, £400,000 second-hand from Ray Belm. So it was new in 95, 600 grand, 
Jake bought it second hand because Ray wanted to get a new one to race in the world championship. Right. He kept that car and we never raced it again after October. And he stalled that car till June 2013. And he sold it for eight and a half million pounds. Ooh, nice investment. You'll have to do the, uh, for your show, translate that into dollars because I'm bound to get that wrong. It's a lot. <laughs> but myself and my girlfriend, Lucy, were invited down through a third party last year to go and sit in that car. And I had to bring the trophies and my overalls and helmet from 96 so they could do a bit for a magazine. And met the new owner and he just paid £22 million for that car. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's rarefied air. So <laughs> what I'm saying, maybe I should have driven for 1% for the year. Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> take the £22 million. Or taken taken an old race car as payment and just stored it away yeah, for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. amazing how much some of these old race cars sell for. It just kind of blows me away. I did a lot of testing in the, because I live in Newport Pagnell, the Aston Martin DBR1 that won Le Mans in, 1959 i've driven it oh 14 15 times never raced it but i've done all the testing for the team because i'm apparently quite good at that anyway the last time i ever drove it was at mallory park and they called me up which they normally do and said oh we've got a new uh, gearbox and differential we need running in can you come and do it on the wednesday morning so did all the running in for 40 laps and then the team owner tim said right now go and give it five proper laps which we always did and that was some, as long as you were in the 48 second area, that was a good lap. Wow. Did five of those, came in and he said, oh, Fluxy, did you enjoy that? I said, why are you asking me that, Tim? I've driven for you for 12 years and you've never asked me that question. He said, oh, we didn't want to tell you, but Harry sold the car on Monday for 27 million pounds. And when we asked you to do those five laps like you just had done, if you'd have known that then, you probably wouldn't have done driven it in the map you just had. <laughs> no kidding. Oh my yeah. gosh. Wow. Oh my goodness. Well, that's amazing. Well, I do like to ask my guests to share a story about one ride, one car that really stands out for them. I don't know how you're going to do this, but if you could just pick one yeah. of all the wonderful cars, and you just told us a great story about one, uh, what would it be? Um, I, I was very fortunate to uh, te test uh, Schumacher's 2004 winning Ferrari at Donington. Ooh. In 2011, Martin Brundle, who's the Sky reporter and XF1 driver, um, this car was owned privately by a friend of mine called Paul Osborne and his company's International Cars. And they'd hired, Sky had hired the car off Paul to do this piece for Sky F1 that you may well have even seen it. Anyway, so they had the track to themselves during the lunch hour. And uh, then I saw Martin going around and I chat to him. And uh, he said he was just doing that. And uh, he, um, I was working for a company called Radical that you have over in the States. Oh, yeah, um, I'm from there. I've got some friends. I've got some friends that ride those. Um, ride those. I, I, did all, I did all the promotional work. So if, if you were thinking of buying a Radical we'd invite you to Donington on that day. Okay. And I, I'd, I'd drive you around initially, then we'd swap over, and you'd drive me around and I'd help you. And hopefully at the end of the day, you go, yeah, I'm going to order one of those. And yeah. that was my job. Wow. Anyway, going back to the Ferrari, so it's about three o'clock, and Paul Osborne appears in the Radical garage and says, oh, Fluxy, would you like to go in the F1 car? And I said, you're joking. And he said, well, I wouldn't have come down here to try and find you if I was joking, would I? So uh, he said, but this is the deal. 
you've got to sit, you've got to fit in Brandon's seat. We'll change the belts for you, adjust the belts, but we're not making you a new seat. So you better fit or you, you don't. So of course I was going to fit. I'd driven for Tom Walkinshaw. So you fitted in anything then. So uh, anyway, I get strapped in there, just adjust the lap belt a bit and make it a bit tighter and fire the car up. And just as I'm about to pull out, um, Paul stands in front of the car and goes, cut the engine in front of me. So I'll turn it off. He said, oh, by the way, Flexi, don't crash it because I know you can't afford to fix it. <laughs> off you go. Yeah, thanks a lot, pal. <laughs> so I was given 10 laps in it and I came in after eight laps because by that point, after eight laps, I was only 1.2 seconds slower than Brundle had managed all, all during the lunch hour. And I wasn't trying. And I thought, right, the car's in one bit. I, I could beat that time, gonna, but I'm going to have to try. And I remember what Paul said, I can't afford to fix it. So when I came in afterwards, I said, no, that was good enough for me. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's only one bit, but I could have done it, but I would have been a bit more on the edge than I was. So it was lovely to drive Schumacher's. So. Uh, well, no kidding. What was one of the things that stood out for you driving that car that you just went, Wow. Right. On my very first outlap, Donington has got some famous bends, if you look it up, called uh, the Craner Curves. And I could feel on my first lap out, I, I wasn't the car was, wasn't going fast enough. I thought, God, this is so easy. And I was being cautious, obviously, it's your outlap. But it just struck me. I thought, oh, my God, this has just got so much grip. Unbelievable. So... so the, on my first flying lap, I was absolutely flat out in sixth gear down there, at 12,000 revs, 18,000 revs or whatever they revved to. But it was effortless because the car's designed to be driven like that. Yeah, wow. Even by some old 50-year-old. <laughs> With a lot of seat time was sitting <laughs> yeah. in that thing. Oh, my goodness, that must have been fun. Well, I like to play the little game with my guests. I want to take you on what I call the ultimate drive, okay? I'm yeah. going to put you in any car. You can take it and drive it anywhere. And if it's not a race car, you can have a co-pilot with you. And this could be anybody, even somebody that's no longer with us, somebody from the past that you can enjoy this drive with. So if I'm footing the bill... What does the ultimate drive look like for you, Fluxy? Well, sadly, I, I lost my dad at 23. I was 23 and he was 49. And he's Oh, wow. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have started racing. And he's missed uh, really from me from 23 to 61 competing. Yeah. And I'd like to, in that drive, I'd like to have taken my dad with me. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm paying for the car, what are you going to be in? Um, shall we be realistic? You know, since I have an open checkbook, who cares about realism here? You know, <laughs> let's have some fun. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to. T I raced at Goodwood the first year of the revival, a lime green uh, Ferrari 250 GTO. Okay. And it's a very famous car. And it, uh, I think it's been sold recently around 25 million. But I'd like to take him in that car. Was that car owned by someone in Japan for a while? Yes. Yes, it was. I sat in that car in Japan. Oh, really? Yeah, in the Matsuda, wow. the Matsuda Museum. Uh, I got to sit in that car a long, long time ago when I went to Japan. First time I went to Japan. Yes. Uh, and that one stands out because of the color. Yes. Yeah. And there was only ever that one. Right. So if anyone 
seen the green yep. lime green gto it can only be that one yeah it can only be that one well that sounds yeah. like fun uh, well i know there's some beautiful roads up in scotland that would be a great place to take that for a drive yeah yeah absolutely okay yeah okay well yeah. that sounds like a dream a dream run to me uh, ian i think you and i could talk for a long time i gotta come come over there and we'll sit at a pub and just you can tell me stories one day but in the meantime for you listeners i would encourage you to uh Get your hands on this book for Flux sake by Ian Flux. Sorry, Mark, can I just interrupt you? Of course. The reason it's called for Flux sake is obviously my name. But if you look at the front cover on my helmet, I've had for Flux sake on my helmet for 41 years. There you go. And it, it came about by the guy who wrote the forward for the book. Tiffany Dell, who raced Formula One as well. Always been a good friend. He was my best man uh-huh. at my wedding. And, I raced the, the Formula Atlantic car over here in 1980, and it had a little aluminium strip to blow the wind over your helmet so you didn't get buffeting in the car. Right. And it had flux on it. My mechanic had just put flux in felt tip. Right. And Tiff saw that, and he put Forsake, and he said, <laughs> my God, that's a great sticker. He went off to race at Macau and came back with all these stickers, and I've had it on my helmet ever since well there you go so that's why it's good for flux sake for flux sake well again listeners i encourage you to get your hands on this book and you know being the holiday season i always say automotive books and especially a fun read like this makes for a great gift for all your automotive enthusiasts that are very hard to buy for because i know i'm one of them just ask my wife uh when she wants has what do i want for my birthday or christmas it's typically well a porsche uh, and <laughs> yeah. she, she laughs and walks away so there you go but i'll make sure i put links to how you can get your hands on this could you leave Leave us before we part ways today with perhaps some words of inspiration or advice for young racers perhaps out there that want to get into the practice. Yes, absolutely. What I've seen in my life, I've been very, very determined to keep going. And I've seen so many young racers that were good that I've raced against just give up too easily. Yeah, instead of I've always I don't mind if I go backwards or sideways racing as long as i'm racing because you can you're still beating people or trying to beat people so but i've seen so many people rather than going sideways or backwards have just thrown in the towel and you think well that that's just a waste you know you were far too good for that so never give up never give up well i'll tell you something fun flexi i've interviewed hundreds of racers probably over 450 now Every single racer, and I was wondering when you were going to say that, every single racer I've interviewed used those words. Of course, of the great Sir Winston Churchill, never, ever give up. And it's true in anything in life. If you really want it, you can find a way. And Flexi, you're an example of that, that did it and created a life around it. So I can't tell you how, how fortunate I am to get to talk to you today. Again, your book is absolutely spectacular. I'll put links on the show notes page of how you listeners can get your hands on it. And I want to do a... Sh- it's probably not advisable for less than 12-year-olds. Well, we'll keep it for the for a more mature audience, an R rating. Let's put it let's put it that way. But you know what? For a wild and crazy life in racing, uh, 
this is the way it happens. Uh, so there you go. And I'll put links to this on the show notes page for everybody. And I want to do a shout out to uh, my good friend, Judy Stropus. She's the one that got us together today. Judy brings me so many wonderful guests. She's been in the racing world forever. Uh, so Judy, thank you for another very unique all-star. Um, may I also, I, I haven't met Judy. We've only done emails. And if it wasn't for her, I, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So thank you, Judy. And thank you, Mark. Well, absolutely. I got to put you two together because you two are quite the characters. Judy has been in the racing world forever. She knows everybody and she's just a wonderful person. Uh, you two would get along quite well. Ian, this has been a delight. I wish I could talk to you longer, but I'm going to encourage everyone to get their hands on your book and buy a copy. Again, we'll put uh, links to that. You, my friend, have a wonderful holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas as it's coming down fast on us here. And I can't thank you enough for uh, spending some time with me today. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. And thank you so much. And uh, very nice if any of the, your good listeners bought a copy for Christmas. It'd be great. Well, better yet, buy a couple for all your car buddies because uh, <laughs> yeah. you're going to hear them laughing as they read through this book because it is a jolly good time for sure. Ian, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cars yeah is proud to support our veterans, which is why I've teamed up with our nonprofit partner, Tech Force Foundation, through its Veterans at Work Military Transition Campaign. The tech shortage is very real, and our country needs skilled, qualified techs to keep our cars, trucks, airplanes, and fleets rolling. When so many vets build their skills in maintaining and servicing vehicles when deployed, Tech Force helps transition those skills to jobs as professional technicians when they come home. Learn more about Tech Force Foundation and its Veterans at Work Military Transition Fund at techforce.org today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!